you can talk about film with a philosopher's zeal or measure them all by box office appeal but for once in your life be real well it's been two years the only thing i remember about stargate is that kurt russell's in it and it's vaguely about scientology but our research mission is still not what it seems Welcome to Be Real, your movie reviewing and reappraising podcast. My name is Chance Solon Pfeiffer. And I'm Noah Ballard. How are you, friend? I'm pretty good. We're kind of like running back this category. Can you want to tell the people why? Well, I felt like two very interesting and of the moment entry points here are the Netflix original film, uh, The Cloverfield Paradox, and then... I would say a pretty big deal, like literary adaptation in uh, Annihilation with Natalie Portman that just came out. And those are both research missions that are not what they seem. Yep. And then just because I like wanted to fuck with Chance a little bit, I was like, and Event Horizon, which is an absolutely (laughs) ridiculous movie, but it falls into that conceit and they have a lot of similar tropes as uh, at least one of these movies. So later on the show, Kira Wardlow is going to join us and talk about a piece she wrote in The Hollywood Reporter about Annihilation and sort of the, you know, science and pseudoscience portrayed therein and like what the movie gets right about the, you know, the, the, the wonder and the optimism and the sense of discovery that people so rarely go into these research movies with. So look forward to that conversation, but look forward to right now when uh, Noah and I hop over to our ethos corner. Take it away, Nick Cage. Keep it real. Think slow. We should get through it just fine. Hello, Ryder, Donnie. Donnie, hello, Ryder. You were just in South Carolina. How was that? Charleston was the best four days of my life. Um, was that, is that so? Well, because I go from like rainy and drizzly like 40 degree New York when we like right. get on this plane for 90 minutes and we land and it's like 75 in summer, sure, you know, and it was like wonderful. And like, we completely, we got there and realized we completely mispacked. We like dressed for spring, not like summer. Yeah. So we went to the Walmart and I got this ridiculous like Hawaiian shirt and some, uh, some pretty bright shorts, which is well, now immortalized in your Twitter profile, I believe. Oh yeah. That's, <laughs> That's what I'm working with. If you want to see just what I what I look like now and how I sort of curate myself, just go to my Twitter. It's just one jaunty shirt after the next. Yeah, absolutely. And then I, I had a, a nice Instagram, uh, uh, what do you call it? Uh, story novel. or whatever. A novel. I went very social media heavy this week just to see how it like played against my brand. And now I'm going to go back into hiding. But That's, it was okay. fun to like be out there. Did you sure. follow along? Sarah did, I noticed. Uh, that's creepy. Um, I saw that you were out in uh, the streets of Charleston, but uh, it was fine. Okay. I, don't, I won't I, ever do it again. I'm sorry. Maybe you got like, caught in a shimmer and all of a sudden like the phone was it part of you. It kind of felt like I was in a shimmer. And then yeah. like we went to see on the one rainy afternoon there was, we went to see it. But yeah, we did... Uh, we went to see Annihilation, um, is what I meant to say. But yeah, we did all the fun Charleston things. Um, was hanging out with my client, Sunel, uh, whose memoir is coming out in a few months. Very excited about that. Called Monsoon Mansion. Cool. Check Good it out. Title. 
Yeah, it's about her pretty tumultuous upbringing in the Philippines. A real riches to rags story. Okay, let's run. Okay, so we start today's episode with Annihilation. Let's annihilate ourselves. It's the second. (laughs) I'm not sure what this podcast wants or if it wants, but we're going to get into it. Um, It's based on the novel by Jeff Vandermeer, the first in the Southern Reach trilogy. Is that right? That's right. And you've read this book, so I'm going to come to you with some questions. Sure. I had to like refresh, so I've like, I flipped through some of its text and then also some writing about it. Okay. And this is the second uh, directorial effort from Alex Garland, who did a real 2015 favorite of ours, Ex Machina, but also uh, was on the screenplay for 28 Days Later and Sunshine. So he's been around for a while writing kind of like edgy, philosophical, frightening sci-fi. Yeah. And is frankly, I think as far as you and I are concerned, like a very exciting presence in the world of like original cool genre films with awesome actors. Is that fair? Oh, definitely. He's getting like a really good pedigree of people excited about him. Um, even though apparently there was like a little bit of drama towards the end of production with this one because they like wanted to change a lot of it because it's kind of has a nonsense ending as far as like your traditional moviegoer would be concerned. This is true. Yeah. I mean, one of the things of it, if you've read anything about this movie, it was that Paramount um who's really struggling as a major studio kind of bet big on it and then midway through decided to take uh, a bunch of money to get it up very quickly on netflix so as for how long this is going to be in theaters uh it's questionable but could be pretty short it could be coming to a tv near you soon um we can talk about if that's the right way to watch it though i don't think it is i i don't think so either i think much well anyway we'll get into it yeah but yeah this book this movie's based on the book by Jeff Vandermeer, which was like a pretty big deal um, for FSG when they put it out. They put it out as like this little paperback original. And Jeff Vandermeer's like been around forever in sort of this cult sci-fi kind of way. But this is his sort of big breakout. And it sold like a gazillion copies. But like the problem with this book is that, you know, it's it's unfilmable. So you can't like you can't write a faithful adaptation much like you can't do a faithful adaptation of Watchmen and make it a good movie. You can't do a faithful adaptation of Jeff Vandermeer or uh, annihilation. That's any good. And Alex Garland didn't try. No, he didn't try. He just broke down the story of this book and figured out how to make it a movie. And Jeff Vandermeer was like totally on board with this and thought it was brilliant. And is a real champion for the movie in what I've read about it so far. Okay. Which is great to hear because, like, you always hear about writers, like, hating the adaptations that were made. Um, But, yeah, this one really breaks it down to its nuts and bolts and, like, puts it back together. And we can get into why they're the same thing at the end. Okay. But I think it is both a very faithful adaptation to, like, the emotion of the book and also like a standalone good movie. That's great to hear. You want to, can you synopsize for us? The timeline jumps a little bit, but basically this comet has hit the earth and just below this lighthouse. And since then something has 
been created around some energy force around it that's causing like paranormal things to occur. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we cut to the story of Natalie Portman's character, Lena, who is grieving over the loss of her husband, who you can kind of assume pretty quickly, like has something to do with this other thing. Cause he's like a military guy. And then after a year and like not really going out at all and sort of like curating this very quiet life, he comes back right, very briefly and then is incapacitated. I don't want to spoil too much about the movie. Sure. Yeah, that's fair. And this sort of triggers a turn of events that creates, that puts her on this team of scientists that has to then go into what they're calling the shimmer this like sort of bubble thing around this lighthouse that keeps expanding that her husband was in and he had to come, he's come back. He's the only person who's ever come back. And so she thinks, well, I have to go in there and figure out what it was so I can save him. And she's with, um, four other women, a couple of, she's with four other women, all of different like disciplines. It's very traditional in the way of like, get the team together and everybody's an expert at something. Very very Crichtonian in that way. Their craft, their field of thought is ultimately like the test they have to go through when they enter the Shimmer. Your husband's here. Let me see him. He's extremely ill. You have to tell me where he was, what he was doing. It was his decision to go in. It's something they termed the Shimmer. We've sent in drones and teams of people, but nothing comes back. But something has. You're a biologist. You served in the military. If I knew what happened, I could save his life. The boundary's getting bigger, it's expanding. We're talking cities, states. You need to know what's inside. So do I. Let's talk about Natalie Portman. Okay. Because I feel like she grounds this movie into like whether or not it can be watchable. Cause ultimately it's her story. That's a good point. She take, I mean, there are other actors in this for, it's not really like a, uh, a castaway or anything, but she's definitely in every scene. Right. I think that it was interesting. You asked me the other week what I thought of Natalie Portman and V for Vendetta. And my answer was sort of like glib, like she's good. She's always good. And I think that when I think about Natalie Portman, I don't know if she has a lot of, maybe it's not range, it's just personality. And so what she brings to like all of her best movies is this sort of like uh, maniacal focus sometimes that you always know is kind of covering up something else, whether it's Jackie or Black Swan um, or this She's just like extremely capable and hyper focused on the task at hand, and it hides a darkness within. And I so I think what you have is kind of like an Amy Adams arrival performance, but steelier. What do you think? Oh, that's a good comparison. Yeah, because they're both like women with troubled pasts and troubled things. And as the movie unfolds, you realize she's more and more unlikable. Sure. You, I mean, and that's like a big weight to take, take on, not the, so it's a sort of a counterintuitive character reveal. Cause typically you learn, you see people doing something bad and then you, you see them redeem themselves. This movie is sort of the opposite of that. Mm-hmm. 
And it takes a big actor to sort of take that on and still keep your interest. By the time you get to the part of the movie where Lena's conception of the world and her pur- and the purpose of this mission like completely break down into something that she has no idea how to interpret and is just responding to, it's kind of like Natalie Portman has broken down her ethos as well. Right. It's kind of a sneaky, remarkable performance, I think. This movie's a lot quieter than maybe I think people people are expecting and maybe that's like why paramount is scared of it that could be because there's not like a ton of there is action in the movie and there are like really well done action sequences but there's not that many of them that close together so maybe her performance kind of mimics that but i think she's just great in those like moments of real heightened action Mm -hmm. like there's something just terrifying about this alligator is like this doesn't spoil anything when they're in the fucking yeah. shimmer, yeah. this like super large, super aggressive alligator comes at her and all the other women like back up and like take shelter of some kind. And Natalie Portman drops to one knee yes. and like unloads a whole clip into this motherfucker's like mouth area. Right. That's exactly the shot I was thinking of too. It's very, and she doesn't blink. Yeah. She doesn't blink. And I mean, I think it speaks to the fact that her character like has is supposed to have an army background. Right. Um, but it's just like, that's a cool thing to see. And then, right. Yeah, of course. And then right after that, the geologist is like in a canoe with her and she was like, so I'm sorry, scientist. (laughs) And then Natalie Portman's like, yeah, I like, I was in the army and I lead a very lonely life that I'm not going to talk about because of my internal trauma. Right. Yeah. Um, She's not there to make friends though. It's true. You know, definitely no. And that's what I think is so interesting about the difference between the book and the, and the movie. In the book, there's like no attempt by any of the characters to open up to each other. Mm-hmm. And they're like all deeply suspicious and they don't know why any of them are like in that team yeah. specifically. And they don't know anything about their backgrounds and they're just deeply suspicious. And the it's told in sort of a log format from the, the biologist that she's just called the biologist in the book Okay. Um, from her perspective. And she's just, she's not like pals with any of these people in the movie. There's a little bit more like palling around and they get to like an emotional place, but there's none of that in the book. Yeah. Um, but I think Natalie Portman does the best to sort of stay true to the book in a way that's palatable for you know a uh, a movie watching audience sure whereas like nicholas winding refn for example would have just <laughs> made valhalla rising again oh, where like Lord. nobody speaks throughout the entire right, film right um so let's zoom out from there to talking about the 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 cast of women on the mission Um, it's notably all women as people have written and and noted quite a bit, uh, with a cast, including Jennifer Jason Lee, Tessa Thompson, uh, Gina Rodriguez, and who plays Cass? I didn't recognize her. She was the only one I didn't know. Is that, am I thinking of the right person? Tuva Novotny? Yeah, I don't know who that is. Yeah, Shepard. Um, but... I liked her, though. She was good. She was good. Um, are there a couple cool things about this? One... You know, first of all, Gina Rodriguez is remarkable as like the, uh, you know, kind of like sauntering up and being like, come on, let's get some beers. And she's like in a tank top and she's just got like fucking like MMA Demi Lovato arms. 
Uh, oh yeah, and she, uh, she's such a cool energy that if you've seen Jane the Virgin, it's, Virgin, it's like, where is this coming from? <laughs> like this right. energy, oh, kind of like a, a little bit like a Private Vasquez in Aliens. She's oh sure, she's sort of that like I'm I am the most like butch woman of this crew, uh, but in this case, it's all women and not Bill Paxton and uh, Michael Bean. Right. Um, and then I like the idea too that they establish her background as being like a paramedic. Right. So you th- know that she's seen more like street life than these like lab based scientists. Very have. true. Very true. Um, so she's really something. Jennifer Jason Lee makes a very odd choice to play like very bored. Nothing phases her like even in a conversational way. Um, I'm not sure how I feel about <laughs> that that's performance. Like, that's just Jennifer Jason Lee though. <laughs> that could be true. Well, she's just been staring at this thing for like three years, seeing people go in and nobody come out. Right, watching and it then get like there's this right, and then there's this spoiler that like we don't have to get into it. Yeah, um, but that that draws her to the the shimmer as well, or draws her to the kind of you know craziness that would draw one into the shimmer. And the way that Tessa Thompson is so kind of like melancholic and just like the way she hangs her head a little bit and she's kind of the physicist and like the most soft spoken of the crew is so kind of like um like don't don't look at me but then the way she carries herself like all you can do is look at her. Um Right. And so the dynamic that unfolds is a really cool kind of I mean let's not be like too weird or like we're two guys talking about how women behave. But, like, nobody, like, pulls rank in this group at yeah. any time. And there's a very interesting part where, like, Jennifer Jason Lee's just like, I'm going to go. And if you want to come, you can come. And that's, like, the most kind of, like, argument about directions they have. Right. But there definitely is, like, a group dynamic that a group of five guys wouldn't have. Right. It's just sort of more based on, like, allegiances and, like, truth versus fact kind of because, like, details come up that, like, alienate certain women as this excursion goes on. Right. That they form groups sort of around people instead of, like, with people at moments, you know? It's tinged with they, a much quieter kind of poisonous distrust. But I think it's fascinating because we don't typically see women portrayed that way. Right. You know, I think the only, like, kind of eye-rolly thing about just this story is her going in to save her husband. Yeah. But I think even that like reversed sort of gender narrative is sort of interesting to consider. But can I throw in a bold assertion here? Bring it on. Is that this movie, it's both its shortcoming and it's what it needs to do more of is the fact that it's very similar or should be more similar to a movie like Girl Interrupted. Go on. And to that end, the fact that Jennifer Jason Lee plays it so sort of safe mm-hmm. and sort of quiet, you lack the sort of Angelina Jolie dynamic that like sort of contrasts the Winona Ryder of what Natalie Portman's doing. Wow. Here. I really like that point. I really like that. Does that point. make sense? Yeah, of course. I mean, it's kind of like that's why the Jennifer Jason Lee performance is strange because you constantly feel like she could be doing more. Because these movies are also like not only research mission movies, but they are people contained in a small space without the power to leave it, you know, under their terms. Right, right. And that's also similar to sort of the the nuthouse of Girl Interrupted. Can we talk about the place that they can't leave? 
how spoilery do you want to get? Um, well, let's just talk about it in a movie sense, what it looks like. It's kind of like the thing that kept coming into my mind. It was like alien meets Candyland, like the body yes. horror mixed with the kind of confectionery look of this place. But I also just think cinematically, like this is a place, and I know that Kira can probably speak um, more specific as to like the science behind this. But like you've, I don't think you've ever been to like a like a faux biological place like this in a movie before. I hadn't. It challenges you. Well, that's like the the levels of this movie. Is it not only challenges you, the viewer, on like how you take in scientific thought, but then it also picks on other ways of seeing things that aren't the biologists. Right. You know, like the mathematician like gets part of it, but like ultimately her understanding of it, like leads her to one ending, you know, and the person who thinks about it, like this is something I have to heal. Why can't I fight it? Kind of thing meets that end too. Everyone, their, their skill becomes their hubris. And the only one who can understand it is the biologist because unlike an alien or something where you have like a tangible intent and this thing like just hell bent on killing, like there's no hell bent in this movie. Ultimately the shimmer itself is like a thing and a a force and parenthetically a narrative force, but it's not evil. It's just different. It's just changing things. It's not like killing things. I couldn't agree more. And I think that this is one of the things that connects it to ex machina is there in these very horrifying quietly horrifying sci-fi movies to these two alex garland directorial debuts so far there is this sense of inevitability of like the destruction of humanity as we know it that is uh, yeah not malevolent and in some ways not even intentional there's something very comforting about the kind of just like this is going to happen there's this fatal, this positive fatalism about the movie totally. where it's like, this is going to happen, but like, it might be okay if you think about, if you were like, okay with it being okay. I agree. If you, and that's ultimately the movie is about change, which I found so fat. Like the movie is ultimately an allegory about like how you perceive change and whether or not you're afraid of it. And if you just let it happen, then you change too. And that's maybe okay. Right. Which is like a positive read on the world, but it's a horror film <laughs> teaching you this thing, you know? Right. Um, you got, yeah, it's so fascinating. So how do you think that the, because we're coming down to it, what do you think the watch, how is the watch? The watch is intense and the watch puts it on a level of like unwatchability in the future. It's so much more sensorially taxing than Ex Machina. But I would definitely, I feel like I'm definitely going to see this again. I 100% agree. But like, but, even just because I find it much like the shimmer itself to be like such an interesting thing that like I try to go into and understand and I like come out changed, but I don't necessarily like get all of it. But there is a scene, the I guess the climax or anti-climax, depending on how you look at it, where what is going on auditorially it feels like it I've never been in a movie that made me feel like it was giving me life with like what it was exposing me to in this kind of like pan naturalistic or like beyond my sense of natural it was giving me life and then killing me at the same time with like the sure. sound and what I was seeing yeah which goes back to I like was, yeah theater 
for God's sake, if you have any interest in this movie, go to a theater. Or like if you have a really good TV. Or that. Like I'm sure. God bless yeah. you. More but, power but to watch, you. But I think watch it. You know, maybe watch it with headphones. It might be an interesting. That could be. That could be. Yeah. But I think the theater going experience will surpass any like home video. Yeah. Oh, a hundred percent. Um, anything to say else to say before we rate it? I think we need to cut to that old timey clip that explains how we rate movies on this show. There is no ambiguity on be real. All movies can and will be classified by one of our four ratings. Good, good, bad, bad, good, bad, and bad, good. The first good or bad refers to sheer artistry. The second is pure entertainment. Good, good is easy to explain. It's a movie that engages your inner art critic and brings you some form of happiness. For both reasons, you want to watch that movie again. Think Shawshank Redemption or Jurassic Park. (laughs) Or more recently, Get Out and Lady Bird. That we know of yet. Good, good movies make Noah hyperbolically say, That was the best movie I've ever seen. Bad, bad is easy too. Movies that bring you neither stimulation nor joy. Basically, you just spent two hours wishing you could watch something else. Think of any musician turned actor who gave it a go in a Nicholas Sparks adaptation. I'll pass. Or many Nicholas Cage movie where he plays a wizard or a warrior. You are going to be a force for good and a very important sorcerer. Bad, bad movies make chance say, I hate so much that you made me watch that. Now, good, bad movies. Those we recognize as worthwhile in a cinematic sense, but don't necessarily enjoy. Think Schindler's List, Requiem for a Dream, or Awards Bait that hinges on a historical figure delivering an impassioned speech. I have given you my soul. Leave me my name! These kinds of movies make Noah say, But it was so boring. And then I remind him that at least Leo finally got his Oscar for crawling through all that mud. Conversely, bad good movies feed your thoughtless inner child. They're anything from flawed but charming Nancy Myers outings. I'm miraculously done being in love with you! To late career missteps like Al Pacino and Danny Collins. They're loud and silly, like Kurt Russell in Big Trouble in Little China or Stargate. It's all in the reflexes. Bad good movies make me want to watch Tombstone, especially when Noah says... But didn't the Mighty Ducks just give you that warm holiday feeling? Got all that? Now buckle up, because you're about to hear two friends who watch movies for very different reasons talk about their taste like it's God's own truth. I feel like we're really in step on this one. Part of me, like, I I watched it and I was, you know, I have a little review up on the site, um, and I was just like, I think it's, I'm intellectualizing it as a good-bad but am I overthinking it? Because I want to see it again. It's like, isn't that what makes a good good? I just think I'm imagining in the future that it will eventually be for me good bad. But I think I should be truer to myself and say, this was fascinating. Although maybe not quite as avant-garde as people think. The 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 wind-up into this movie is like so standard for the genre. Um, right. The whole movie is pretty standard for the genre. It's just like what it asks you to consider is like maybe a little higher brow than like this horrible beast coming at you. <laughs> sure. And, but the, the scene of the horrible beast in this movie is unbelievable. It's pretty cool. And it's not like gross. It's just kind of like, I don't know. I think it's a little gross. <laughs> 
it's definitely like a little gross but it's 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 mind-blowing i i lost my shit during that scene um so i think this is a good good oh it's definitely a good good cool yeah but like you have to go into this movie understanding as you probably already knew going in if you watch one of these movies these movies don't give you the answers you're looking for like they never yeah they never do and so like those people are going to be frustrated of like well she has to kill the alien at the end like or i'm not satisfied all right do you have thriller eyes yet because i'm ready to move on oh yeah we are forever changed having seen and now potted about that movie. That's right. So let's talk to Kira Wardlow about the more scientific side of what happened in this movie. Can you describe its form? No. Start from the beginning. Our guest today is a contributor to Film School Rejects, the Hollywood Reporter's Heat Vision section, and she's got a unique DNA makeup of both a film critic and a biologist. Uh, but after going into the shimmer, who knows what else? Uh, Kira Wardlow, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited to have you to talk about this uh, piece you wrote for The Hollywood Report about Annihilation. Um, I wanted to start with this line to kind of set up a contrast. You talked about how oftentimes when you watch these sort of like, well, our podcast category is, you know, a research mission that's not what it seems. And these scientists express like a certain uh, unreal hubris you talked about how your your experience as a biologist your mind kind of goes into what you call the stress-induced coma so what tell me what you're thinking about there like what are you seeing in a movie and what experience are you having where you're like this is not doing it for me yeah well just to just to be clear i'm a biology student so i'm still learning you know like there there are there you know usually biologists have phds and at least a few more years in school than i have under my belt right now um but the Movie science-induced coma comes from something I like to call technobabble, which is the way that sci-fi movies will tend to be like, okay, well, well there's a science thing going on. Um, it's not actually possible. So what we're going to do is we're going to put together a bunch of really long words and have someone in the lab coat say them, and that's the problem. And the thing that, that kills me about that is that to the general audience, they mean nothing because sure. they don't know what those words are. And then to the people who know what those words mean, it still means nothing because that's not how those things work at all. So it's entirely pointless. The whole thing is just to like really quickly try to prove a character's authority without having them do anything that demonstrates that authority. Right. Yeah. So you You make a great point. It's kind of for no one when they do that. Yeah. Well, I think it's it's trying to like set up a system that makes sense. But the thing to me is that you don't need to explain how the mechanism works which is what I like about Annihilation, is that it's not telling you, it's not trying to set up saying, this is exactly how this thing works. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's just giving enough of an illusion that you feel like there is a mechanism there, that feasibly there is something there that has some sort of system to it. We just have no idea what it is. So let's get into that idea, because it's something you pointed out in your piece, that the movie narratively is doing an interesting dance between you know, providing some level of coherence or logic to like what can happen inside the shimmer without ever boxing itself in with like rules. How, where do you see that kind of narrative dance happening? I think what it does, it's very smart is the way that the shimmer interferes with how they experience reality. Mm-hmm. Because one of the things that, you know, cause I, I study film and I study biology. So from the more, uh, 
film and media side, you do see kind of when you're looking through scholarship, people criticizing overly scientific perspectives. But a lot of what those pieces often misrepresent that I find irritating as someone who's interested in both is that the scientific method is quite limited. It's limited to things that can be measured and interpreted um, empirically, so based mm -hmm. off of experience. Um, with the shimmer interfering with how they perceive things the way it does, it's actually outside the realm, really, of what a scientist could study. If it's messing with your mind and how you perceive things, you can't sure. learn anything about it through the scientific method, which mm -hmm. I think is fascinating. Um, and, a, and a great way of handling that, of like trying to set up something that's really kind of feels real, but, you know, is beyond the realm of anything that we've seen or experienced. That's such a cool way of looking at it. And I wanted to, if we can, can we, can you connect that at all to the visual of this movie? Cause I had this kind of, you know, the look of it, the kind of like Candyland confectionery look of it is at times like really kind of blatantly unreal. But then I think about, Jeff Vandermeer being inspired to write Area X while on like a walk in this refuge in Florida. And you, as a, as a biology student, there have to be times when you start to look close enough at the, at the natural world and it doesn't feel real. So is there, is there a convincing sense of kind of like real unreality going on here in the aesthetic? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think so, because the way that it shows things mutated often have a particular sort of um, symmetry to them or like kind of a very pleasing quality that yeah. like, very much feels natural in that sense. I mean, I think, you know, because you see uh, Natalie Portman's character a lot of times referring to microscopes or looking at things under microscopes. And I think um, I start off that article that I did with a quote from G.K. Chesterton, who's a very interesting author from like the early uh, 20th century and he had this quote saying that the microscope is the only invention that's made the world bigger and when I was little the thing that really pulled me into biology specifically was my experience when I started like doing ex uh, experiments with microscopes mm. especially um, one of my favorite things that I ever did was live slides so you like just take basically some pond water okay and you culture it um, so you just kind of boil some hay in water and like dump, you know, however much pond water in and then leave it for a few days. And then you just look at it under the microscope. And there's all these fascinating looking creatures. Um, there's these things called diatoms. And they look like almost they're made of glass and they can be in these really intricate patterns and all these shapes. And, um, yeah. you know, because the, they're, they're almost, can they, some of them are kind of see-through. And so there's just all these, you know, you can't see them, but they're right there. And they look otherworldly, you know? So right, I right. think that there's a lot of some of the visuals like that where they almost look like something that you would never see, you know, in front of you, but that you might see under a microscope. Almost. Sure. One of the best lines in the movie is Jennifer Jason Lee saying something to the equivalent of, I don't know what it wants or if it wants. And in your piece, you, you zone in on like what makes this so kind of like, Scary and comforting at the same time is this lack of intent, right? Mm -hmm. um, which is, I thought, really cool from like Alex coming from Alex Garland and like a way to structure a sci-fi horror movie. But then one of the things that you point out is like that's true to life. Like the universe mm -hmm. is indifferent <laughs> to us. Where did that kind of come up for you? 
and even when you're you're studying science, you're studying something like a disease, you tend to humanize things to understand them better. Like, oh, a gene does this to do, you know, you give it some sort of intentionality, but it doesn't have that. Mutation is entirely random. Yeah. Um, and so things happen that don't make sense. Like even if you look at how something like vision works, um, it's like uh, I had a, a teacher in high school, I remember, and he always used to say, you know, the, the biggest th- issue with intelligent design is that no intelligent being would design people this way. Um, okay. <laughs> because uh-huh. there's a bunch of redundancies, um, you know, and other sorts of things that help if one thing goes wrong, the whole system doesn't fall apart, but also just because things happen randomly or got duplicated or, you know, so on and so forth. Yeah. Um, yes. And that sometimes that can manifest in terrifying ways. If you look at something like a virus where it's like, we don't even know whether to classify it as living or not, but in some ways it's smarter than us. Sure. So, you know, you've got that interesting uh, dynamic going on there. So to kind of zone in on the movie, I don't think this is too, it's kind of like unspoilable, but in the lighthouse scene with the mirroring, I mean, that's where the kind of the question of intent is most like in your face in that movie. What were you feeling in that moment? It's funny because being a critic and everything, I always take notes and kind of by the end of that movie, I was just kind of staring at it, you know, it's just like, (laughs) you just want to enjoy it. You're like, I'm not going to look down on my notebook. It's, it's fine. Um, What am I supposed to write down about the fact that it feels like this is like killing me and fascinating me at the same time? Well, yeah. And at that point too, it's like not, it's so kind of just engrossing, you know, it's not necessarily something that you can put into words. It almost has a very intangible feel to it that I think is just incredible. But I think the thing to that's, same with me is that there probably isn't any intent to it you know because everything feels so much like an echo in it sure yeah Um, one more question for you about kind of (laughs) our (laughs) cinematic language intersecting with like what this movie was trying to tell us about science so this idea of horizontal gene transfer um, yeah of this like creation that doesn't come through um like standard earthbound reproduction well I, I was just thinking that like so much of our movie language for talking about mutation and creation is either through like nuclear mutation because like that was a whole like influence on movies for decades and decades and decades and still really today and yeah. then like kind of like grotesque versions of animal kingdom birth like alien and things like that um but what is it? have we ever seen like this kind of creation depicted in film i don't I mean, I don't think that at least I have quite in this way. There's one point at which they address like, oh, is it some sort of hybrid or like, and it's, and it's not because it's like, oh, it couldn't be, it's animals and you can't between animal species, you know, have interbreeding. But the thing is with even bacteria, which are living viruses, eh, but bacteria are, they are moving away from thinking of them as um, species just because they have so many different ways of exchanging genetic material and they can change so vastly because of that. It's like, well, what if you had this weird alien thing that is capable of things we can't even quite comprehend, but that somehow makes more complex multicellular organisms work like that, Uh huh. you know, and would completely destabilize the genome and right. destabilization of the genome in us often means things like cancer. Uh huh. So it's, you know, there's a lot of interesting connections there where 
like you, again, this is what goes back to the technobabble thing. If you try to make a very specific connection to what we understand of biology, it wouldn't work. Right. But if you just try to think of it in terms of like conceptually big picture, there's some fascinating stuff there. This is totally right. Like, I love listening to you talk about it right now. But if you were a character in the film describing what you just described, I would hate it. (laughs) (laughs) To your point. Um, Okay, so I hope you'll take one more compliment about this piece. Because when you make it to the part where you talk about, like, the scientific process and the arc of science being a process of kind of destruction in and of itself that's when I felt like we had made it to the proverbial like lighthouse of your essay um when did that dawn on you because it's fascinating and it's such a good meta read on what's going on I think I don't know sometimes I think that point kind of came to me in the process of of writing that sort of you know I don't know like I think it was kind of probably in my thought process somewhere but that's when I kind of became fully aware of that thread running through it because one thing I've noticed is even since, you know, I've been taking like more advanced classes or whatever, the way that certain concepts are explained, you know, have changed dramatically. Mm-hmm. Like you're taught kind of even in high school, like, okay, so DNA to RNA to protein. And that's how, you know, things in your cell are, are made. Um, and there's this junk DNA and that's not, doesn't become proteins. It's not that important, whatever. But, you know, now you take molecular genetics and 80% of the class, you're talking about that stuff that they were calling junk before. Because now they're like, oh, this actually controls how everything is regulated on like all different levels of the process in these hugely complicated ways. Um, That's the thing I think that fascinates me is sometimes or a lot of times in science, when you learn something new, you have to kind of forget something that you thought you knew before. Right. You know? So right. it's it's a very interesting interplay. Okay, so Kira, my last question for you. Um, do you, or have you, are you going to um, talk up this movie among your biology peers? Have you evangelized to any to anyone about it? I mean, yeah, I've, I've, I've evangelized to the to the general public about it, you know, and to and anyone who will Yeah, yeah, and some people too, like, I, I think it's a fantastic movie, and I think too, it's, the visuals of it, like it really deserves to be seen on, on a big screen, I think, you know? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We were kind of lamenting the, the quick Netflix transition. Cause the, the scene we were talking about where you, about the point where you put down your notepad is the kind of thing that's not going to be good on a 25 inch TV. You know, I think Alex Garland, I, I love his stuff and certain ones of his films have kind of struck with people right away, but then some have taken a bit more time. Like, you know, Sunshine is one. Right. And that was one that was Danny Boyle directed, but he wrote it was right. one, I think, where when it came out, people were like, meh. But I feel like it's gotten more appreciated since then. Sure. And I, I feel like that might end up being the case with Annihilation, too. I feel like people will get there. Well, unfortunately. Yeah. 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 Well, Kira, thank you so much for your time. What, mm-hmm. I feel like I learned a lot and there was a lot I didn't still don't understand, but <laughs> much like this movie, another fitting parallel. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. This is incredible. It's the event horizon. She's come back. The event horizon is the culmination of a secret government project to create a spacecraft capable of faster than light flight. The ship doesn't really go faster than light. What it does is it creates a dimensional gateway that allows it to jump instantaneously from one point of the universe to another light years away. Where has she been for the last seven years, Doctor? That's what we're here to find out. 
Event Horizon. 1997, and our old pal, as you put it, Paul W.S. Anderson. Yeah, when did we encounter him? Was it the Aliens vs. Predators? Yeah, his his second alien movie, as I found out when I watched this one. (laughs) Now, he's definitely very interested in a very specific space. The premise of this movie, if I may be so bold, is based... If you can, if you can get there, good luck. I think it's basically like, what if you made Alien, but instead of Aliens, it was just like, the devil. <laughs> it's, it's essentially the, a mashup of, if I may, Alien and Sphere. I mean, almost exactly. Whereas like Alien's like, oh, there's something creepy on a, a, a spaceship that like all the other people are gone. Like, right. what is it? And it turns out it's like the thing from Sphere, which is the sphere thing like makes you hallucinate what you're afraid of. Right. That's true. That's true. And then that becomes your undoing, which is the, that's this movie. A hundred percent. So need we say more? I mean, you, it opens up and it's like the year 2047, I think. And Sam Neill plays like a, a doctor who's like part of the shadowy government. And they're looking for this like famous kind of like challenger esque, um, ship that like went missing seven years before called the event horizon and it was out like on the outskirts of neptune and it just disappeared and so it uh unbeknownst to this crew of this ship the lewis and clark um the event horizon has reappeared and that's why dr weird played by sam neill has uh lawrence fishburne and julie richardson and jason isaacs and company uh in search that's why he's taking them off leave and out on this uh research mission that is not quite what it seems can we start with just like the world building in this movie sure there's not a lot of it but go ahead well there definitely is a little bit because the first thing you see are these title cards yeah that say 2015 so now it's three years ago (laughs) first permanent colony established on the moon i remember that which has nothing to do with this movie 2032, commercial mining begins on Mars, which has nothing to do with this movie. Mm-hmm. Are you saying that Paul W.S. Anderson is not a particularly like nuanced or insightful filmmaker? Is that Do I detect that in your tone? <laughs> I just think there's like a way to show a society that like these things have happened without like, you should know this background thing that like, what year is this movie? 2028, the Marlins win the World Series. <laughs> right. The Cubs have now won the World Series every year since 2015. Um, yeah, I mean, this... Donald Trump is president. Right. Uh, well, um, so this setup, I think, is perfectly palatable in this genre. I think there is the necessary sort of like just a tidbit of hang before we get going. Like everyone's so skeptical. Like Jason Isaacs um, is like a really kind of imposing presence. And who's the pilot? Sean Pertwee plays Smith. It's a good cast. I would say, I think so too. I would say Richard T. Jones is trying a bit too hard. I would agree with that, (laughs) but it's good enough that what you have is the firmly established dynamic that Sam Neill is the outsider and I think that the Sam Neill performance here is better than it needs to be 
and so good that the movie should have done him more favors. I think it's so interesting because you watch him and most people's relationship to Sam Neill is kind of like a, you know, gruff Alan Grant, right? Or more recently, like Hunt oh, for the yeah. Wilder People. Or if you follow him on Twitter, like that's his whole, he has that persona of being like kind of cur- a lovable curmudgeon. And so you see him here as sort of like the the highest ranking, like most educated person. And you're like, I like this guy, I think, but I also understand why they don't like him. But then, of course, his performance goes somewhere, you know, to another dimension. (laughs) Oh, yeah. And then it comes back. Yep. This movie, I mean, we can spoil it pretty quickly. This movie, like, what makes it entertaining is just, like, how totally crazy it is. Absolutely. Like the places and the place that it is willing to take you with this like clearly borrowed and appropriated premise <laughs> right. for like something way better. Right. And like it literally takes you to hell. Yeah. Like and <laughs> Paul without with no irony whatsoever. No, it takes you to hell. None. Uh, as long as we're spoiling it, we might as well set up the great part, which is like. So the, they find out that the crew of the Event Horizon... Well, they don't really find out much about them other than they all died um, and like went through the circles, Dante's circles of hell. Right. It, and now they're like in puddles around the cockpit. Right. It's a pretty bleak look at like, I don't know, this sort of technology. Um, or I don't know technology is just, is so much as like God, but it's a weird like Icarus story, isn't it? Well, yes, this is goes back to the very traditional setup for these, unlike Annihilation, which is just like your hubris to bend dimensional time travel so you don't have to like sit in cryo has like opened the portal to hell. You shouldn't have reached so right. high, man. Well, that's the thing. Like, well, where Alex Garland, maybe his visual conception is like. Things are going to be different, but they'll be like, okay, maybe if we can just like get over it. Whereas Paul W.S. Anderson is just like, if we're not living in 1997, (laughs) then we're getting our skin torn from us at excruciating speeds for eternity. Right. By like God, like, and it goes into like your Christian understanding of hell down to like the gothic sort of imagery of it, right? And like the chains and like, oh, yeah. At one point, someone is flayed, a la like a William Blake painting. It reminded me of something out of Red Dragon, honestly. It's and apparently it was when this movie the cut was sent originally to the MPAA they gave it an NC seventeen. Do they really? And the studio made him cut a half hour out of it. That was the right choice though, because if this movie was a, like two hours five minutes, it would not be getting the rating I'm going to give it. Oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> I'm. I think I'm on the same page with you. But there's there's a lot of gore in this movie, and that's like really like the the climax of this movie takes place in a pool of blood, right. like a pool of blood up to someone's chest. Yeah, it's like after most of the spaceship fills with blood. <laughs> there's so much blood. Yeah, it's true. I mean, and the movie is nonsense. The, it's funny to think about, like, what are the rules of these movies when a phenomenon is involved, right? Right. And so, like, in Annihilation pulls such a beautiful sleight of hand, I have to assume, because of both the filmmaking and the source material, which is that, like, you know, 
anything could happen, but within like the suggestion of these certain mutations and like what is in front of you and you adapt to it like it were a science experiment, right? Like, I just know what I know. All I know is what it's doing. But this movie, of course, is like, okay, when does somebody get super strength? And like, when do bombs work? Like, when can you kill and not kill? Like, it seems like some people are definitely killable, but other people are reincarnated. Some people know that the hallucinations are not true. And then later on, they're just like, they have no idea. Like, well, this movie, it's like if a child gets like a chemistry set, like one school of thought, like plays with it very carefully and like sees the interesting things that it can do and understand the meaning, this being Alex Garland. Right. And then you give it to Paul W.S. Anderson and his first instinct is like, okay, I have Sam Neill and he was pretty good in Jurassic Park. And the villain of Jurassic Park was the dinosaur. So how do I get him to like be as scary as a dinosaur by the end of this movie for like the opposite effect? Because like, fuck everything. Oh, it's such a Paul W.S. Anderson question. Um, so wait, what do you think of where Sam Neill goes? Because, well, to continue to spoil. We can spoil this. Sam Neill becomes like Satan. Satan incarnate, yeah. yeah. So Sam Neill's body, after he rips out his own eyes and like scratches like through his like cheeks and side face and then gets sucked through like a space window or whatever. Sure. And then he comes back. It's just like this bloody mess devil thing. Right. And it's unbelievable that like Sam Neill... Like, he was the one who went back after the kids in Jurassic Park. Like, what does he become? It's, I mean, it is really cool. And, of course, Paul W.S. Anderson does him no favors in hiding the turn of the movie. Because, like, I trusted him for a long time. But then the minute he, like, looked at the, you know, the planet core slash Stargate and, like, the thing zoomed in on his eye, I was like, okay, well, he's, like, clearly the villain of the movie. <laughs> like, why did you direct that that way? We should say real quick, though, that I think if Fishburne might be an underrated like movie star, he is oh, yeah. highly He's watchable in this. in this movie as just like Mr. Captain, follow my orders. I won't let the crew down. He's very good. He, he's never going to lose another man. No. I mean, he loses a couple, but I loses most of the crew, including <laughs> himself. He's dead by the end of the movie. I really like the part where Justin, the kind of like, uh, I don't know. I hated Justin. But he's like trying. <laughs> they be a little bit. What was the thing they kept calling him? Baby boy. Little bear. <laughs> Baby bear. Uh, Mama bear. He tries to. Let me ask you this. He tries to commit oh, suicide in the airlock, and then like, there's like thirty seconds to like decompression. At which point, his body will be ripped into a billion little pieces, and his blood will go through the air like slime. But. <laughs> Fishburne is like, <laughs> Fishburne is shooting toward the airlock. And he's just like, Justin, if your blood is starting to turn to slime, close your eyes and curl into a ball. That'll help. And it's like, why would that help? And also, how do you know that? Like, Right. Is there a class like an astronaut school where they're like, the day of like, okay, if you do get sucked into space, yeah. what all you need to do to like hang on for another two to three minutes is to curl into the fetal position and close your eyes and shut them. If you're about to get Dr. Manhattan, like, just get small. <laughs> yeah, you have to get small. Oh, my Lord. <laughs> if you were an actor, like, on the rise, and you get cast in a movie like Event Horizon... As Justin? 
as Justin, and your legal name is Jack Noseworthy, <laughs> would you just like run to the courthouse and just change it to anything else? I would, yeah. I would change it to like uh, nobody's gonna be like, "Oh, did you see the new Jack Noseworthy movie?" I would change it to Jack Manhattan Esquire. Is what I would right? change it to. I would just change it to Jack Baby Bear. <laughs> Oh, man. So let's rate this movie. What do you think? I think this is a Be Real podcast definition textbook. Bad good. I'm with totally with you. This movie compelled me from start to finish. And I think I'd probably watch it again and not remember how like violent it is. And then maybe we can watch it the next time we hang out if it's like around Halloween or something. That would be fun. I yes, I think the final box tick on the bad good checklist for me is when you think that a rather like rote genre movie is just kind of like stumbling toward its end. And then like a couple more times it's just like fuck you. No. <laughs> Sam Neill's coming back with like you know, chunks out of his face one more time. It's like, give him more chunks. Take off his clothes. Give his body chunks. It's, cla- it's classic bad good. Yeah, it's pretty It's pretty great. I mean, I want to um, watch it again tomorrow because that would be horrifying, but like right. in a couple years. Definitely. I think I knew this movie was textbook bad good when they like, pull up to the event horizon and like the words event horizon are lit with 800 <laughs> like circus lamps. Yeah. And it's like, you have like, it's like, it's, you know, you're just pulling into the city limits of event horizon, like circus right. freak show town. Like you mm-hmm. have to know at that point that like, I don't think we should like ever attempt to get on this ship. Right. But alas, and I'm so glad they, they did it. Of course. He, I mean, Dr. Weir got to go home. So let's move now to the Cloverfield Paradox, which really were, you know, about a month late on what was kind of like an instant reaction kind of medium or at least delivery system bending moment for film. Because this movie was teased during the Super Bowl with the information that it was going up immediately at the conclusion of the game, at which point film Twitter and anybody interested in the uh, Cloverfield series got immediately on Netflix and watched it. The moment after the studio had told the world it was going to be there during like the most watched live event ever. So it created kind of a fascinating discussion of like, God, what is Netflix's relation to film? How instantaneous can this get? Um, What to make of the next of the weirdest step in this already weird franchise um, but the reviews for the movie were kind of meh. Well, that's, I mean, had it been a better movie, I think it would have been an interesting way to release it. Right. Like, this is an interesting way to release like a $40 million movie. Cause that's like the big thing that everyone wants to figure out how to do is these like mid budget movies, Keep the mid budget movie alive. Yeah. Right. Cause movies have now become huge tentpole 200 250 million dollar movies or like five to ten million dollar movies right you know like your get outs and ladybirds of the world and to your point annihilation was a 40 million dollar movie and the right. delivery system struggle with that is very apparent absolutely and so this was like a sort of 
bold gamble of like, we have this like weird JJ Abrams produced movie lying around. Like, what are we going to do with that? And if it had been more like, Hey, we have this really great $40,000 movie like annihilation. If annihilation had come out end of super bowl night, like, and oh, then sure. been a good movie. Yeah. And people would just like talk about it and dissect it. Cause it's like, this movie doesn't leave anything to dissect. Right. Oh no. But let's get into the Cloverfield Paradox. I have to be quick. Whatever you're doing right now, stop. Go to your children right now. Kiss them. Hold them for as long as you can. That's all there is. Yeah, so we like pick up an earth that's like supposedly at the same time as the original Cloverfields. Yeah. Or before. Like, the Cloverfield thing hasn't happened yet. Right, right before, yeah. And have you, like, do you remember the original Cloverfield, like, the basic setup? Not that well. I mean, it was like a normal, in my watching, it was like a normal world, and these people were, like, he's at a going-away party because he's going to Japan. Yeah. And so in this one, though, the world is, like, at the brink of war with each other. And it seems like international travel is, like, not super thumbs up. And it's, like, 20 years in the future. Yeah. And it just doesn't line up to me immediately, like, how is this, like, Cloverfield? And that's, like, a weird place to put this movie. Um. But yeah, so the world's at the brink of a war and we follow these scientists who are on this spaceship like just outside of Earth and they're trying to make like a big uh, energy conducting circuit tube thing. Conductor. <laughs> what are they making? No, I, I think you're describing it fine for what it deserves. It's well, they're, they're trying to do a thing that, again, like is so they're like bending dimensionality to create power. And right. there's like this hilariously inserted like clip where one of them is like watching Fox News of this universe. And which like, why would you be watching that if you were on the space station and this was your only mission? And this kind of like Alex Jones figure is like, I tell you, if this goes wrong, we're looking at monsters, demons, beasts <laughs> from the sea. Those are the th- and I really think the Beast from the Sea is a great third addition to that list. Um, <laughs> if you, like your main concerns with like this alternative energy is beasts from the sea. Again, how does that not fall within the category of monsters and or demons? But this movie, like, <laughs> you can't make like this is like allegedly the Prometheus of like the alien, right? It like shows sure. what happened oh, yeah. before like something else happened, right? But it like it's such a ludicrous reason to like fuse these two things together, like this very pedestrian space movie with right. the Cloverfield series. So but like th- the suspension of disbelief for me is like like in- intertwined. Sure, you mean because you know the whole time it's like two movies. Well, I just like knew in my movies, whole... it's like one shoved into a bookending brand. It's like a movie that was had its principal photography in the can, and then J.J. Abrams came aboard and said, if you shoot four more scenes from this, linking it weirdly to this other movie that I own the rights to, I will make sure it gets distributed in some Ugh. fashion. And I just can't get that out of my mind, because that's the genesis of this movie. 
And it's so apparent and like the logic of it doesn't make sense to me that them like turning on the spaceship, like elicited the space from the sea. <laughs> can I just, this might not be an appropriate rant, but can, how poorly does that reflect on like JJ Abrams as an artist? I mean, people love J.J. Abrams because he's good at taking, like, old properties and making them new again. And he's good in the long term and he's good in the short term. You know, Cloverfield was, like, a movie, like, the Blair Witch Project that they made for nothing and made a fuck ton of money. So if you call it Cloverfield, people go, like, huh, like a low-budget kind of, like, fun sci-fi movie. And that's what they – he collects – and then releases them. And the same thing with Star Wars. The same thing with Star Trek. He's just good at taking things that are old, right. either 10 or 30 years, and making them new again. But I think when you look at this and, like, the, uh, I guess the, like, lack of consideration that comes with taking a different movie called God Particle that David Oyelowo and Chris O'Dowd and Dana Brule did not know was coming out when, like, when this was put out and... And you just like attach it onto like a a property that you own. I just think like once and for all. I mean, maybe I'm the only one who's thinking of him this way, but like J.J. Abrams is not Alex Garland. He's just savvier George Lucas. Like this is yeah. He's like, just this is this is a craven, um, like like thought experiment, like lack of respect for the audience kind of decision. Yeah, and it's, like, very obvious. You got it. J.J. Abrams, who, like, saved, quote-unquote, I guess, saved Star Wars, doesn't know that this movie is shit. Like, he knows. He just thought he'd try it out. I think he does know the movie's shit, so the only way he can save it is through, like, marketing. And that's, I mean, I don't know. Do you think he saved it? And that's what happened. He got the word Cloverfield in the title, and then you watch the whole fucking movie. Like, he, he got what you wanted to, no, what needed right. to happen okay. accomplished. So he's even better George Lucas than I thought. Right. Yeah. That's the problem with like current Steven Spielberg. He just won't make movies that like people want to see. Sure. Sure. So yeah, I mean the the relationship and the mood and the dynamics up there. Well, yeah, we haven't uh, talked about the characters at all. Up there on the Shepherd, is that what it's called? Oh yeah, because it's going to shepherd them into energy independence. The setup up there is like, what it revealed to me is that this genre of movies is dependent on an, albeit rote, preamble that reveals something about the relationship of these characters. Whether it's two minutes clanking, like, lining kugels together with the gals on the roof in Annihilation, or whether it's just going around and introducing Lawrence Fishburne's team to the doctor who turns out to be Satan... You need a little bit of hang in order to make this work at all. And yeah. you get and you get a horrible music cue, two seconds of foosball, and then the Russians just like, I don't trust any of you. <laughs> it is pretty quick in the setup. And like it's such a waste of a seemingly pretty good cast. Uh, oh, yellow woe? Brule weirdly signs some contract where he's not allowed to be in good movies. I don't know what the <laughs> hell is with that guy, but like, is there I like anything a- more with like race cars? What's Ron Howard up to? Do I have to do another one of those? Can I be in the zookeeper's daughter? Does she have a daughter? Um, <laughs> but like Chris O'Dowd, um, John Ortiz is a you know constant character actor. He's interesting. How do you say the woman's name? The 
I can't lead. say I'd ever heard of Gugu Mbate Ra before. But Chris O'Dowd is like, gotta do something. I mean, like the arm bit is like funny ish, but it's like not that funny. Ish. Like right. he, he like walks up to the line of being like, could somebody give me a hand here? Like it's very, <laughs> it's very kind of like his character. Can someone give me a hand here? <laughs> right. Thank you. Yes. Um, uh, not, get it. I'm not Scottish enough. Um, but like also the movie it's stupid and it's not willing to go like far as far as like Paul W.S. Anderson's like willing to go. And that's why they had to tack it onto Cloverfield. Right. You know, it won't take them to hell. It just takes them to this like weird alternate dimension that then relies on this woman being like so into her dead kids that she's like, I'm staying in this other alternate world because my kids are still alive because like, right. Which is such a stupid, contrived thing and such a like a weird gender stereotype. And if you lack both like directorial wildness and like earned character dynamics, the problem with these movies is that they just devolve into well, they devolve into little cloverfields. They just devolve into events. Like they're in a certain part of the spaceship and all of a sudden like I'm repairing this wall for the third time or something, and my arm goes in it. Or like all of a sudden <laughs> there was one crazy traitor and now there's another crazy traitor and it's just like i don't know man this movie has like so much more pedigree than event horizon could even dream of oh definitely so like unwilling to do even the kind of like save the cat legwork to create a script that's interesting that i found it just like uh, i i couldn't get into it at all it's boring. It's very boring. There's some like interesting visual gags, I would say. There's not like that much like visually that's that cool. I mean, there's a couple like outdoor shots where it's like interesting, but it's not it's not serving like the plot in a lot of ways. Like that meat grinder does in uh, you know, Event Horizon. It's like, I wonder if that weird meat grinder is gonna come into play in this horror movie I'm watching. Huh? <laughs> Well, yeah, Paul W.S. Anderson tries so hard that trick of like something going in front of the camera, in front of the person that he does 12 times. He's really trying to get you to feel something about how scary this is. And I think that Julia Sona is not trying to get me to feel anything. He thinks that he has like a good movie on his side and he doesn't. No, it's just like a pretty boring like run-of-the-mill, our research mission is not what it seems, films. Yeah, this this movie is weirdly like if you and I came together and like, so our research mission is still not what it seems, the podcast episode, colon, the movie. Right. Where we like stuck everything from all these categories together but made no real choices or had any real angles. But we just right. made it and we had money. That's what this would be. Or if our podcast was so popular that like people were hoping like people were watching movies because they were like, I wonder what Chance and Noah are going to do next. It's like, well, we need one more. It's like when we come up with two examples of like a very great genre, <laughs> make like yeah. make a make a Cloverfield paradox. Like they need another edition of uh, a research mission. It's not what it seems. Right. Absolutely. OK, but so bef- before we get out of here, why do people care about Cloverfield? I've never gotten that. Clover, I, we did 10 foot Cloverfield Lane for the pod, 
And I found it to be an interesting movie in and of itself before the Cloverfield tie-in. But like, why do people like this? Is it just because like the perspective is different than your average disaster film? I, I don't know. I mean, I think, I mean, I, the Blair Witch uh, reference I made earlier. like Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. mean, I think they just try to like, if you, if a movie like Cloverfield just made like oodles of money. So if they find a property that does that, it's like, well, how can we do that again? It's like, well, let's just make it a same version of a different thing or the whatever. But by this point, J.J. Abrams is like Jason Mraz trying to do Elliot Smith. Like it's. Like, what the, why am I watching this? Like, you're just faking your low finest. Mr. J to J, he's all about the payday. <laughs> um, yeah. So this movie's bad, bad. Oh, it's undeniably bad, bad. Like, I, I wish it weren't, because, like, that's a cool way to, like, launch a movie at people. Um, but it's bad. It's bad, bad. So for a podcast that you and I reapproached for the second time, we were very much on the same page this episode. I don't think we disagreed about a single thing. I don't know if that for a good podcast makes, but I had fun. Sometimes I get a little tired when we argue about stuff. Oh, sure. Like Dirty Dancing? Oh, yeah. I didn't sleep for days. <laughs> I'm more comfortable doing this. Sure. Um, yeah. Nobody puts baby on the other side of the space-time continuum. Um <laughs> It's like the sheet of paper and you put the pen oh, through Oh, my it. Lord. You're going to see Wrinkle in Time? I feel like we're about to get that again. I wonder again. how many Hollywood pieces of paper have lost their lives because of like <laughs> pens going through them to describe space science. I bet there's, I, I'm almost certain there's a super cut of that out there somewhere. <laughs> there should be. Uh. All right, buddy. Well, barring anything else to say about this category, this has been fun. It's been so fun. I'm glad that our research mission was exactly what it seemed. <laughs> right. Everything and that's went, uh, a good time. Everything went as planned. There was not a prescripted franchise, evil incarnate, or, um, you know, questions about existence that I can't answer on the other side. It was just three movies that were exactly what they seemed. Right. Thanks a lot to Kira Wardlow for coming on. That was a fun talk. And uh, as for you listeners, please check out berealpodcast.com. You can find our show on Stitcher or Apple Podcasts or Overcast, wherever you get your shows, we should be there. And if we're not, if you are for some reason access your podcast and we're not there, uh, let us know. All right, buddy, this has been a fantastic episode. Talk to you next time. Helplessly hoping her